a soccer team if all were goalkeepers? How would it be an orchestra if all were French horns? So said Desmond Tutu. Whether playing in an orchestra or band, a woodwind quintet or a brass quintet, the French horn stands out as unique. And what happens when you add to its range electronic sounds? I'm Emily Auerbach and this is University of the Air. Joining me to explore the French horn then and now is Daniel Graboy, professor of horn at the UW's Mead Witter School of Music, a performer, recording artist, composer, and innovator who directs EARS, the electroacoustic research space in the UW School of Music, as well as a French horn rock band called Twisted Metal. Dan, welcome to University of the Air. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I confess I am a recovering oboist. I played oboe while going to UW-Madison on a music scholarship and then played oboe in, in symphonies as well. And we used to claim that the oboe was the most difficult instrument to play, but French hornists often said their instrument was the hardest. What do you think? Is French horn the most difficult instrument or one of the most difficult instruments to play? Well, I'll start by saying they're all hard. <laughs> Uh, creating beautiful sounds is not easy, and interpreting music is an art form, and that's what we spend our lives trying to do better and better. So it doesn't matter if you play an easy instrument or a hard instrument. They're all hard instruments. and um, There is a reason why it is said that the horn is hard, and it has to do with the physics of the instrument. Uh, it has to do with the harmonic series. So every time you play a note or sing a note or make a sound... What is heard is the bass note that you're playing plus a whole bunch of overtones above that note. And the strength of different overtones is what gives a note its tone, its particular characteristics. And um, so uh, the thing about the harmonic series is as you move up from low to high, the, the, the overtones that are heard are closer and closer and closer together. And we play the horn. The horn is a very long instrument, all wrapped up into a nice, tight, circular bundle. But um, because it's so long, the, the bass note, the, which is called the fundamental, is quite low, which means the place where we play, the overtones, the partials, as they're called, that we play on, are very close together. So, for instance, I have my horn here, and if I play our middle C, the note we call middle C, which actually... If anybody out there listening has perfect pitch, is actually an F, but we call it C, and we can just leave that at that because it's complicated. <laughs> and that's my middle C. And the very and I play that without pushing any valves down. The next note that I have available to me without pushing any valves down is an E. And the next note I have is a G. And the next note I have is sort of a B flat out of tune. Then I have a C. So that's an octave. If I go up in the ne next octave, they get closer and closer together. I'm, again, not using any fingerings at all. I'm just playing the open horn. So they get closer and closer and closer together. So if you imagine a piano keyboard where the notes aren't all the same width, but as you go higher, the notes get narrower and narrower, and it's hard to put your finger exactly on one note without hitting the neighbors. That's what our neighborhood looks like on the horn, and that's why we... That, that's our claim to difficulty on the instrument, is just being able to pick out those notes. So do we make mistakes? We sure do. And we've all heard that, where a horn is supposed to come in on a certain note and something else comes out. Absolutely. Um, so what is if, – if you look at the, the history of the instrument, I mean, why is it even called French horn? Well, it's called French – so the, let's go way back further and start at the beginning. Horns were made out of horn. They were animal horns. And if you cut off – if you kill and hopefully eat an animal and you're going to use its bones to make tools and you're going to use its skin to make clothing, so there's going to be no waste at all. You're going to eat everything that you can possibly eat. And if you cut the horn off of the animal, you have the big end of the horn, which is the part that attaches to the animal's head. And then you have the, um, the sort of spiky end of the horn. And if you cut that off just a little bit before the tip, uh, you have basically like a mouthpiece. And the whole horn is hollow. 
So if you figure out that you can put your lips inside that little mouthpiece that you've created and below you have a horn and it makes a lot of noise. So horns would have been used for long distance communication. Um, these were the kinds of horns that in, uh, that in legend blew down the walls of Jericho and they do make a lot of noise. These kinds of horns are still played. For instance, um, the shofar is just such an animal horn played at Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, and so that's, first of all, why it's called a horn, is it was made out of horn. They started being made out of metal because it's a lot easier to make... Well, once you know how to work metal, you can you can make your horns out of metal and you can standardize the size. And the the length of the horn determines what notes it can play. And um, and because they're noisy, they're, they can be used for long-distance communication, and they became used in hunting. And so if there were hunters who were spread out and somebody found a fox or whatever was being hunted, um, that person could sound the horn, and every when a particular horn call would mean, I found a fox, maybe another one would mean, I found a deer. And, um, and so the horn became associated with the hunt, and um, opera composers loved putting hunting scenes in their operas. People were really hungry for this kind of raucous hunting music. And that's how horns initially went into the orchestra. Now, unfortunately, what uh, Bishop Tutu was talking about never happened, where the orchestra became all horns. <laughs> that probably would have been the ideal solution. Um, but um, the horns were very raucous. So a typical hunting call might have sounded something like this and it's going to be kind of I'm going to try to play it kind of in a wild way something like that and again I'm I'm playing everything on the same fingering so I'm basically playing a horn like that um, so you had these horns, and they were they're they're now called natural horns, the horn that has no valves and the really great ones were made in France, hence, if you're going to go get a horn, what kind should you get? Well, you should probably go get a French horn and so there we have the name French horn, so just to continue the history a little bit, even though you didn't ask oh, but I would <laughs> <laughs> around eighteen twenty the valve was invented. And you can imagine when the valve was invented that it was not very good. But basically what a valve does is it adds a little length of tubing to the horn. Now, before valves were invented, the horn could change keys. So you had a horn that was pitched in on a certain note. So maybe you had an E horn. It was pitched on an E like this. <laughs> And you could take out a little length of tubing from that horn and put in a longer, slightly longer length of tubing. Now you'd have an E-flat horn. It would sound like this. And so on. And those little lengths of tubing were called crooks. And it was a kind of a pain, I'm sure, for horn players. So you'd have to carry around your horn and a whole box full of crooks. And you needed time to change, swap out one and swap in another. So, in fact, in old music that's written for the natural horn, if you need to change keys, they give you lots of measures of rest in which you can, you know, pull out one crook and put the other and get yourself ready to go again. Um, and um, meanwhile, horn players had discovered that they could put their right hand in the open end, the bell of the horn, and they could get notes that they couldn't play open. So, for instance, if I'm playing the E-flat horn and I'm doing this. Now, this note is not available to me. I'll show you what happened if I keep going up and try to hit that note. But by using my right hand and closing off the bell a little bit, I can get that note. So, uh, 
what I'm doing is for those covered sounding notes, I'm moving my hand around in the bell and and finding a way to play that note. So the the horn was actually a very colorful instrument because it had notes that were closed and partially closed, and um, and it made all these very interesting sounds. It made it really complicated to play a piece uh, that changed keys. So you're using both your fingers on the valves. No, no, no valves. No valves at this point. No still. valves. But exactly. you've got fingers inside the bell. I've are... got yeah. I'm I'm holding my right hand in kind of a princess wave um, form, like I'm uh, Queen Elizabeth waving to the crowd from her car. Uh, the way I often describe it when I'm teaching beginners is it's like holding about a quarter cup worth of water in your hand and not a half cup. So not a, just almost flat, but not quite. And then with that hand, like a paddle in the bell, I'm moving it around, closing off the bell. I'll show you what happens if I, uh, in sound, if I just close it off slowly. So I can get a pretty big bend that way. And that's how, if you could um, transport yourself back to Mozart's time, you'd hear horn players doing that while playing Mozart's symphonies or serenades. And what about the mouthpiece and what you're doing with your, you know, with the oboe, we talk about the embouchure, what we're doing with our, our lips. What are you doing to alter the, the pitches just with your mouth? So you're really getting to the heart of teaching this instrument, really teaching any instrument, and that is in trying to describe exactly what we do. So let me preface my answer by saying, by asking you a question, what are you doing when you ride a bicycle? Hoping not to fall. Right, but you're balancing. Okay, what are you doing to balance? Well, I don't really know what I'm doing to balance. I, when I started riding a bike at five or six, I didn't know how to balance it, and then I did. And there's not much you can see of the balancing process when someone's riding a bike. And it's very similar, and it was probably similar for you on the oboe. It's hard to describe exactly what to do, and you can't talk anybody into being good at an instrument. You can sort of guide them and guide their experiments. So what are we doing? Well, our lips are uh, vibrating. The way this is usually described is we make a buzzing sound like this, which I'm doing just with my lips. Uh, and that the horn amplifies that sound. That, in fact, is not true. My lips are both kind of together inside the mouthpiece. Uh, the mouthpiece is very, very small, so it's a little bigger in circumference than a dime, but barely bigger, as contrasted with, say, a tuba mouthpiece where you, pretty much your entire mouth fits in there. But um, they've put cameras inside mouthpieces to look at what happens, and the the lips don't actually touch each other back and forth as they do when you go where they're sort of bouncing rapidly back and forth. But there is a vibration set up, and it's set up uh, because the air is trying to pass through the lips, and the lips are providing some resistance, and the horn is providing some resistance to the air. And this opposition creates a vibration which creates a sound. So what we're doing with our mouth is we're figuring out how exactly to find a balance between how strongly the lips are gripping the air and how strong the air is flowing past the lips. And a particular balance gives you a particular note. And what would the French horn of Mozart's time, how would it have looked and sounded different than it does today with the instrument that you brought into the studio? What's the biggest change? Well, the biggest change is that there would be no valves. So the valves are those buttons that you push, and this gets back to the invention of the valve. So that's uh, thank you for that direction back to my story. So um, I had mentioned about the crooks changing the key of the horn. So instead of having to put a new crook on, which is what they would have done in Mozart's time, his horns would have been these sort of circles or or combinations of circles that started like my horn with a mouthpiece at one end and opened up into a bell at the other end and they were much more simple and um, then when the valve was invented around 1820 there would be a button that you would push and you would push it with your left hand because your right hand was busy inside the bell and it would open up an extra little length of tubing and whenever you have a longer length of tubing the sound goes down so um, maybe you would have a valve that would turn your F horn 
It would n- enable it to play just one half step lower. So you could go from an F horn to an E horn without having to change your crook. You would just push the button. But I'm imagining, and I don't know really, I've never seen these really old horns with valves, but I imagine those valves did not work well the way the valves today do. So probably you weren't actually fingering the horn the way I do. I use my fingers to play a a whole scale. Probably you would play the, when you were playing an F horn, you were still using your hand in the bell, and then you would push the button down. Now you had an E horn, and you would use your hand in the bell to make the extra notes as well. So Mozart's horns would not have had any valves at all. And even up through Brahms, Brahms, everything Brahms wrote for the horn was written for the valveless horn. He loved the sound. He loved those differently colored notes. And he thought that the valve was a horrible invention. Hmm. And why is it that the French horn manages to be part of a woodwind quintet and a brass quintet? How did that come to be? You know, you don't have a trumpet playing with a woodwind quintet. No, you would bury the entire woodwind quintet beneath the sound of a trumpet. I don't know the answer to that, but I will say that the early horns, so woodwind quintets, there are, are old ones that were written for the natural horn. So going back, well back into um, probably the beginning of the 19th century, maybe even the late 18th century. And those horns were much lighter in sound, so they would have blended um, a lot easier with the oboes and the bassoons and and so on. Of course, those proto-woodwind instruments also were not nearly as powerful as the ones that we have today. Um, the fact that you would use your hand in the bell to cover certain notes um, would make them even softer. So I think that blend probably was always a little bit of a challenge in the wind quintet. The nice thing about having the horn in there is it really thickens up the sound. But the weird thing about having the horn in a woodwind quintet, which is flute, oboe, clarinet, horn, and bassoon, is that the horn is kind of is the biggest, broadest-sounding instrument, but the bassoon is the lowest instrument. So um, it's very complicated. You do, usually you want... If you think of a column holding up a, a ceiling, you want the fattest part of that column at the bottom of it and not almost at the bottom of it. So it's the same with balancing. It's really tricky uh, balancing the horn in a woodwind quintet. I know we're going to get into some of your own sort of inventions with different kinds of French horn sounds, different recordings later in the hour. Um, But I wanted to just go back to when you were deciding what instrument to play long ago. What drew you to the French horn? So in my elementary school, I grew up in Williamstown, Massachusetts, which is a very, very small town of 6,000 people in the northwest corner of Massachusetts. And um, in the good old days, music programs in public schools were really thriving. And so there was a band program and an orchestra program. And um, in fourth grade was the year that you would start playing a band instrument. But my family was away uh, on a sabbatical when I was in fourth grade. um, And we were abroad and we came back and all of my friends were playing instruments. And so I started making a list of what I might want to play. And um, we had a flute in our house that my grandmother had given us, and I thought, maybe I should play the flute. And my dad had played clarinet in high school, and I thought, maybe I should play the clarinet. Um, My brother had started the cello, so maybe I should play a violin, a stringed instrument. Um, uh, My best friend had started the trumpet, so probably I should play the trumpet. So I had a very, very long list encompassing lots of instruments uh, that I was thinking of playing. And then One day in the late summer, my mother went to my elementary school and she talked to the band director and she picked up a French horn and brought it home and said, here, play this, because she (laughs) loved the sound of the horn. And I loved it. I liked playing it right from the start. And so I just stuck with it. And what is it that speaks to you about the French horn after all these years and making a profession out of it? What do you love the most about the French horn? Hmm. Hard question to answer because it doesn't seem like it's just such a part of my life. It's like saying, what do you love about your thumb? Well, it's my thumb. At this point, (laughs) the horn is my thumb. I'm playing it all the time. And when I'm not playing it, I'm teaching it. But I love the sound of the instrument. 
um, although I don't always love the sounds I make on the instrument, but um, it's a beautiful, beautiful instrument. It feels good to play. It's a, such a lovely instrument to hold, uh, and the mouthpiece on my lips feels like there's a nice slot where it fits on there and everything just feels right and it feels good to play it. Now, does it always feel good to play it? No. It can be a very fatiguing instrument. It can be a scary instrument to play because you may be playing a piece where you have to come in on a very high note, quiet, out of nowhere, and the entire Dane County will hear you if you miss that note. Uh, so there's certainly... Um, tightrope walking aspect of playing the instrument um, but that's also enjoyable if you're an adrenaline lover and then the other thing I love about the horn is the horn community it's just a group of wonderful people uh, to be with and I know horn players around the world and there's so many wonderful people we're going to hear and talk about more French horns in a minute when we return with University of the Air the French horn is one of the most romantic-sounding of orchestral instruments, warm, rich, and emotional. In symphonies and in music music, the big horn solo frequently marks an emotional climax. But what happens when the horn moves into the context of contemporary electronic sounds? I'm Emily Auerbach, back with Dan Graboy, and we are talking about the French horn then and now. You know, we're used to the sound of the French horn playing Mozart, Beethoven, Strauss, other things in the orchestra and in, in various chamber ensembles. What made you, as part of your whole career, want to experiment with new sounds for the French horn? Well, my entire career, I've played a lot of contemporary music. I like exploring new kinds of sounds. Um, I've always been pretty good at playing complicated rhythms, which is uh, definitely a, a selling point when it comes to playing new music. If you can play complicated rhythms, um, then you can find somebody to hire you to do that, playing new music. And I had the first 24 years of my career as a freelancer in New York, and I, I did an awful lot of that kind of music. Um, and that landed me a job running the Contemporary Performance Program at Manhattan School of Music, where I had gone and gotten my master's degree for graduate school. And so in that program, my students were playing all kinds of crazy contemporary music, which is what they were there to study. And I hired um, a colleague of mine to come and teach um, electronic music. And he uses a piece of software called Ableton Live, and Ableton Live is a way that you can take uh, an acoustic instrument and basically plug it in. So then you have an electroacoustic instrument. So um, a few minutes ago, you talked about the electroacoustic research space, which is my research lab over in the Humanities Building. With um, the wonderful acronym EARS, E-A-R-S. Just completely by happenstance, <laughs> it happened to stand for that. We got very lucky. Um, but... Um, the students in my program started making really amazing sounds when they were plugging themselves in and, and using this software. And I started thinking, well, I, I want to learn how to use that too. And a few years later, I ended up uh, being hired here to teach horn at UW-Madison. And part of being a professor at a major research university like University of Wisconsin is that you do research, and your research is supported. You're given funding to start up whatever it is that you want to do, and you're basically turned loose. And this was my opportunity to start buying some equipment. And I also love listening to rock and roll, and I thought, well, this is a great chance for me to try to learn how to use this software and figure out a way to make the French horn, which, as you just pointed out, is this very romantic-sounding instrument, which we associate with Mahler and with Wagner and with Brahms, but we also associate with big movie scores by John Williams, and it's always the horn is playing the love theme or the hero, hero theme. Um, and that's just not the right kind of sound if you want to try to play rock and roll on the horn. So another advantage of being able to plug in was to figure out how to change the sound in a way that makes it work in different contexts. And I have really devoted my career to playing lots of different styles of music. So plugging in enables me to 
vastly multiply the kinds of styles that I can play. When you say plugging in, are you talking about just sort of like playing a regular French horn but into some equipment, or are you talking about actually hooking up directly to the horn? Okay, good. So um, if I can spill the beans to the listening audience, uh, Emily, you and I aren't in the same room right now so that we can be mask-free. And so you can't see my setup, and of course the audience can't see my setup, so I'm going to describe it. I have here a mute, and it's uh, a mute that you actually plug in. So it fits into the bell of the horn, and it is, um, it's plugged into the wall. And this mute um, is really, I think, designed to, so that you will not bother your neighbors when you play. So it has very little sound uh, coming out. And I'm going to show you that. I'm just going to put the mute in and not amplify anything so that people can hear. And, and French horn players use mutes all the time. We do, but we would never perform with a mute like this, and you're about to hear why. It eliminates almost all the sound. so yeah, you can. that's very soft. Yes. And um, this mute comes with its own amp. And so the way it's intended to be used is you go to your hotel room, you're on tour, and you put the mute in and you put the amp on and you plug headphones into the amp and you put them over your ears and you play and then you can hear yourself. And so what I do is I use the mute as a microphone and it's plugged into an interface, which I have behind me. And the interface is a machine which turns sound waves into zeros and ones. So it makes them readable by a computer. So the way it does that is it samples the sound. It keeps sticking an eyedropper into the sound every split second, many, 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 many times per second. And and it gets a reading for each of those samples and turns that into uh, a digital code so that basically the computer can hear what it is that's being played. And then I have up the software Ableton Live, which is knows to listen to the interface, and then I can transform the sound on my computer screen, and then I have a speaker that I'm connected to where everything plays out of. So that's, that's the routing that I have here. It's very simple, and it could become much more complicated. Um, back in ears, I can make a much more complicated setup, but this is a transportable setup. And what's the purpose? Show us the, the, the result you're going for and, and what this enables you to do that you couldn't otherwise do. Sure. Well, let me just play an example of something that's going to sound very different. There's an example with a whole bunch of reverb. Yeah, I was just going to say, I hear the reverb there. So you've done that by... What exactly have you done to make it so that we hear that reverb? You've done something with the settings? Yep, I've just sent my sound over to some reverb. That's that the computer does. Here's something way more extreme. Okay, so is that acoustic? So the computer is distorting the sound and making it sound kind of like a like a fuzzy electric guitar. And that's a plug-in that I have, so my sound is running from my interface into the computer, and the computer is distorting it and sending this distorted sound out. What, and, el- what are some of the other fancy things you can do? Okay. Uh, let's see. Let's try this one. You can hear that whoa, 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 sound. Um, um, that's called a ring modulation. Here's another crazy sound that I can do. So I'm doubling the pitch up with another pitch next to it. And are both those pitches, I mean, at, at what point is it not you? 
Um, the higher pitch is me, and the lower pitch is not me. Ba-ba, that one's me. That one's not me. That's the computer matching my sound a major third lower. And at what point is this sort of like a synthesizer then? Synthesizer is something different. This is called um, an, eff- an effect. And I guess there is a way – basically the, the computer is capturing my sound, lowering the pitch and playing it back, my sound with a pitch transposed by the computer. So a synthesizer is different because in a synthesizer you have oscillators. You have oscillating devices which produce sound waves and you can change the way they oscillate to change the tone. So this this is not sound synthesis. And is some of the driving force be- behind why you're experimenting with different sounds a desire to create a sort of 21st century French horn, you know, to update it to... You know, you mentioned Wagner, and there's the big horn solo in Strauss. There's this sort of traditional French horn, very mellow, very romantic. Is some of the impetus behind what you're doing a desire to kind of speak to now or to to update? I think it's a more a desire to explore. So when I started plugging my horn in and making different sounds, what I found right away is, oh, this makes me play something different. So when I had that very distorted sound, this one. I play something very different than when I have this sound. So it's almost like a compositional um guide. It's almost like putting on a different outfit and you feel different and you sort of present yourself in a different way because you're wearing this really snazzy suit. Sure. And and, again, thinking of movie scores, you can get such different moods with all those different sounds. Exactly. And that's music is about mood. It's about communicating feeling. You're um, one of the recordings that that you've done um, is called Air Names. Can you tell us about that recording and maybe give us a sample track? Yes, I can. So the recording is the big project that I did after I started buying equipment. And I this was before ears existed, and we can get into how ears came about later. But I had a small amount of equipment. I actually had some actual pedal stomp boxes. They're sometimes called pedals like guitar play, electric guitar players use. And I started, uh, I started improvising on the pedals. And one, the thing that's really great about the software that I use is that it can record anything. At, with the push of a button, you're recording. So I would record. I started recording things, and and I started feeling like I was getting better at just playing alone and recording it and making kind of a song out of an imp- improvisation. So I'll. Um, Right, so I started doing all these improvisations, and then I thought, well, I should make an album out of this, and then there should actually be some songs as well, and I wrote the songs in different ways. One song I dreamt, and I woke up at 6 in the morning having just dreamt a song, and I raced out of bed and got a piece of music paper and wrote down how the song went before I would forget it, and then I went and recorded it later that day. Um, other one song I thought, well, I think I would like to have sort of a pop sounding song. Uh, so there's there's all kinds of different material on there. But an example of something uh, a little bit simpler is the song Oaxaca Cathedral. And Oaxaca Cathedral is um, – I, I called it that because I, I used to go to Oaxaca quite a bit and work with young brass players there. And there's a very, very old, I think it's a 16th century, huge cathedral there. And one time we had, we were playing a concert and we had a whole bunch of warm-up time in the back of the cathedral in these huge stone rooms. And I started playing and the sound was bouncing all over the place, kind of like a delay. A delay sounds like this. So it's the sound goes mm-hmm. out and the, the same sound bounces back again. So kind of the echo effect. 
Exactly. Well, yeah. So you have a, that sort of an echo, and then reverb. Reverb is this, it would sound like reverb, and delay sounds like delay, 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 delay. And anyway, so I I I had remembered improvising a little piece in Oaxaca Cathedral. And so I put a delay pedal on and I tried to recreate that piece and that was ended up being a song called Oaxaca Cathedral which we could listen to a little bit of. It's actually really haunting. I, I like that. Thank you. Well, I didn't expect. I'll just confess, I didn't expect to necessarily. Um, being more of a romantic music type myself, I thought I was going to hate it. But it 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 gave me a, a actually a kind of a sense of an earlier time, almost the way you might feel if you were in a cathedral listening to Gregorian chants, or just something about a, a kind of a primal um, response to music. Yeah, it's really interesting how something so modern as an electronic effect can can take you somewhere not electronic at all. And that's part of the fun of this is you just create these sound worlds and then it's like how novelists say they, they create a character and then the character tells them tells the novelist what the character is going to do. In this case, you have a sound and it cre- starts creating its own world. You've been called a rock and roll star, and when we continue in a moment, I'm going to ask you about that. More in a moment on University of the Year. Daniel Graboy, horn professor at the UW-Madison, is an excellent horn player, composer, inventor of instruments, MIDI programmer, maybe a rock and roll star, and certainly a creative genius. That's a review from the... Horn Call. It's a magazine of the International Horn Society about my guest, Daniel Grabois. I'm Emily Auerbach, and we're talking about the French horn then and now. So they called you a rock and roll star, and I know you mentioned um, that you are interested in the sort of rock and roll sound that a French horn can do. Do you have an example of that, Dan? Sure. There's a lot of rock and roll on the Air Names disc. So I had mentioned about the song that I dreamt, and we can give a little listen to that. That's a song called Harry Lewis. I also dreamt that the name of the song was Harry Lewis. I do not know anybody named Harry Lewis. <laughs> I don't know where or where any of this came from, but why don't we give a listen to Harry Lewis and you'll hear a rock and roll star, I mean a rock and roll sound. And um, I, I should say that everything you hear except bass and drums is played by me um, mostly on the horn, sometimes on some other stuff. But... So I did bring in um, some colleagues, uh, a drummer and a bass player, to do the recording of those parts. So here's Harry Lewis. sounds like more than one horn player, but you're saying that's you playing the horn, playing other kinds of things, and then assembling it together? Yes, it's a multi-track project. So again, Ableton Live, the software, makes it very easy to record one track and then put another track over it and then another track over it. Um, And I actually, I wrote down, I used very little manuscript paper, wrote down almost nothing but when I needed to play to figure out what the harmony was, I would often write down what I had played in the melody so that I could figure out the harmony and then record the harmony track by track. So it's kind of a one-man show in a certain way. Plus, you had a couple other players, as you mentioned, but it's really you know, doing multiple sounds and then putting it together. I'm, I'm intrigued that you said you dreamed it because I don't know how you would dream something that's got mul- multiple parts like that. 
Um, well, I guess I dreamt <laughs> the melody and the feel of the song, and then I figured out the, what the harmony would have to be to make sense. And how cool to take an actual dream and have it translate into something that, that you can listen to. One time I dreamed a uh, Gilbert and Sullivan um, adaptation, HMO Pinafore, where the characters were <laughs> going to be doctors and pharmaceutical representatives. And it was a great idea, but I woke up with no music in my head. So it's nice to have a dream that actually leads somewhere. It was um, really fun. <laughs> so that would be an example of a kind of rock sound um, that that you would be playing with. What about, by the way, that the um, I, I saw in your bio that you worked on a French horn rock band with students called Twisted Metal. Anything you want to tell us about that? Yeah, I'd love to tell you about that. So, the UW Horn Choir is um, can, is made up of my students and a bunch of non majors also who do it for fun. And the horn choir used well. Doug Hill, my predecessor, who taught for a long time, very distinguished uh, professor at UW, he founded the Horn Choir, and they started performing uh, 50-some years ago a holiday concert in December at the Chazen Museum. And um, we still play at the Chazen every December. We did it uh, a week or two ago. Again, um, we had to skip last year for obvious reasons. But we were able to get in there and play for a small audience. And um, and then the horn choir used to take the spring semester off, and I thought, well, maybe the spring semester would be a really good time for the students to learn to play music in a very, very different style. And I wanted to do this because I play in a group called Meridian Arts Ensemble. It's a group based in New York, which I joined over 30 years – well over 30 years ago in 1989. And that group plays – all kinds of styles of music, um, including rock and roll and jazz and um, music from around the world in various styles. And it's really fun, but also it's really um, opens your head to play a kind of music which you know very well and recognize, but the way it's phrased, the way it's treated is so different from the way we treat classical music. Uh, that I thought, what a great learning experience. And and then, so I, I just added a spring semester of the Horn Choir, and I thought Twisted Metal would be a great name because we play a piece of Twisted Metal. <laughs> and now it's evolved to the point where all of my horn students are required to do an, at least one arrangement for Twisted Metal. And often the non-majors do, and many of the majors arrange m- more than one song, and I always do at least one. And we give a rock concert, and we get a, a drummer to play with us. And the most interesting thing about it to me is that somebody will do an arrangement of some song, typically some more modern song that I don't know, but the students all know. And we play it, and it sounds nothing like the song because when they play their horn, they're in one mode, and when they listen to a kind of music, they're in a different mode. And figuring out how to be – no, no, this horn playing should be in that same mode as the stuff I hear on the radio – uh, it takes a couple of sideways steps to get there, and then by the time April comes and we give our concert, everybody's figured out how to play this kind of music. Hmm. In the review I read from Horn Call, it mentioned that you were an inventor of instruments. How so? So that's generous, but I do have two things that I play. One is sort of one is not really an instrument at all, but I use it as an instrument, and the other is a a transformed instrument. So there is a – well, actually, you would like this, Emily. There's a oboe-like Indian instrument called the shanai. Mm-hmm. And shanai-like instruments exist all over uh, India and, and Pakistan and then coming a little bit further west. Um, there's these various sham-like instruments that are um, related to the oboe. They're played with a double reed. And they make a, a a nasal sound, and I find it extremely expressive. And um, so I actually used to live in New York City. I lived in Queens in a neighborhood called Jackson Heights, which is um, said to be the most diverse square mile in the world. And it was very, very diverse, And it, but it had a lot of people from India, and there were a lot of stores selling Indian stuff and – um, I went into one of these stores and was just poking around, and down in the basement they had this basket full of shanais. 
and you could get a Shanai for 35 bucks, and so I bought one. And and I brought it home, and then I thought, well, now I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with this. It came with a double reed that didn't work for me. So I figured out how to fit a French horn mouthpiece into the opening where the reed would go. Um, my mouthpiece was much too small, but I I wrapped a whole bunch of dental floss around the end and then <laughs> put beeswax on top of that and made a connection. And I turned that into an instrument actually – I didn't bring it today, but um, we can listen to a little bit of it. But it made a, an instrument that didn't sound that much different from a Shania, especially when I put some buzzy effects on it. So I actually played on my very first uh, recital at UW after getting here in, in 2011. I played a piece at that recital on the instrument, and I announced to the audience that I had made this instrument, and I had no idea what to call it. And so I was open to suggestions. And uh, my colleague John Stevens, who was then the tuba professor, is now retired and has undoubtedly appeared on this program, Mm -hmm. um, came backstage after and he said, well, I don't have a name, but I'm thinking – well, I should say we when we play our mouthpiece, we talk about buzzing the mouthpiece. So he said, I'm working with something like no read buzz. And I thought, oh, yeah, no read buzz, no reba. And so I call that instrument the noriba. And um, and then the other non-instrument is actually another mute um, that's a stopping mute. It's a mute. I can give a – I'll give a little demonstration of this mute. Um, but it makes a very buzzy sound similar to when you put your hand all the way into the bell. It sounds like this. So this is a strangely shaped little um, hollow piece of brass that has – it's sort of horn-shaped. It's very hard to describe. But anyway, it has a big opening at one end and a little opening at one end, and it turns out that the horn mouthpiece goes perfectly into that thing, and then you can play it like this. That's quite different. It made me think of jazz somehow. I don't yes, know why. <laughs> it's very jazzy. It makes me think of of jazz, and it also makes me think of uh, Marilyn Monroe's Happy Birthday, Mr. Yeah. President. <laughs> so I created a song called Love Triangle in which I play the French horn through effects and the noriba and this thing, this mute, which I play. So those are the three characters talking to each other in this love triangle. leaving me a little speechless. I don't even know what to say. It's wild. Yeah. It's interesting. The bass line of that song is actually uh, comes from a French horn etude that I wrote, and I thought, oh, that, that thing would make a good bass line. So what is the bass line if you just play the, the it, play it straight? Um... I don't even know if I can do it off the top of my head. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Something like that. So you have something you start with, and then you add all these effects and different instruments. I, I noticed there's a review of your CD that we've been playing for, the, the Air Name CD um, from Fanfare, that says, A terrific escapade, an attempt to free the French horn from its usual pigeonhole, a work of the finest imagination, take your pick. 
Nice. Yeah, that's I quite didn't the... remember that. That that feels good. <laughs> well, escapade sort of fits with what you were saying about the adventure that you feel. Um, if you have different effects to play with, different kinds of music, it it must feel very liberating compared to always having to play a certain way. Yeah, it really feels great to have um, a giant canvas and all the paint you would ever need and all the brushes, or you can just roll on that camp canvas with paint. You can put anything there that you want. Why did you call your CD Air Names? So it goes back to a piece of software called Dragon Dictate, which I believe is the software that has been reborn as Siri on the iPhone. But when a dictation program for the computer came out years ago, I thought, this is great. I don't have to type anymore. I can now dictate to my computer and it'll turn it into typed text. So I plugged it in and started dictating and absolute gibberish was showing up on my screen. But it was really poetic gibberish. And then I took the gibberish that came out and I sort of turned it grammatical and I came up with these poetic things that were uh, much more interesting than any kind of poetry I would think of if I were in my right mind. And so here's one of the very short poems. Don't drown there. I will save him politely, and the hanging can begin, though it's bad on film. Think, you haven't much but air names. Well, it's deep. I don't know what <laughs> I it, don't know what it is. So. I don't either. That's the fun of it. But again, it's this idea that anything goes... And I thought it was really fun, and so I actually did uh, create a song called Not Much But Air Names, and the disc was named Air Names, and that leads to the birth of the rest of the discs that I'm going to be recording. So what does the future hold? Where are you going next with your experimentation and composition on the French horn? Like if we, if I interview you in five, ten years, what are you going to have right. to listen to that that we haven't heard yet? Well, so Air Names has actually been followed up with Fire Names, which is a is now recorded. So that's a piece that I wrote for horn and tape, using the term tape loosely because nothing's actually on tape. And then um, I decided that it really could be a, a tetralogy with four different CDs, ear names, I mean air names, fire names. So the next two will be earth names and water names. And I'm recording Earth Names uh, this summer, and that's actually going to be contemporary music, almost entirely, pieces, some written by me and some written for me. And um, so I, I was think, in thinking what's going to be on Earth Names, I thought, well, that should be much more down-to-earth. So that's going to be like real contemporary music written down and recorded the old-fashioned way. And then that leaves Water Names, which I will record next the summer after this one. And I know that one's going to be very slippery, so I'm not sure what's <laughs> going to happen. But I will create it in ears, and it will undoubtedly use lots of instruments and lots of French horn. And I try to think that there's no wrong answers in this business, that it's all just a great experiment. And if something works for me, then, then it'll go on the CD. And if it doesn't, it can. That's why computers have trash cans. Well, thank you so much for sharing what you have done already, and best of luck with future projects. My guest has been Daniel Graboy, professor of horn. I'm Emily Auerbach, and this is University of the Air.